We started this two weeks ago, and we actually started not by jumping into Exodus, where the, where the commandments are located the first time, but we started in the Gospel of Matthew, first book of the New Testament, and we looked at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And that's when Jesus, really as far as his teaching, goes public as the Messiah. And in that, in that sermon, he talks about the fact that he doesn't want anyone there to think or to be mistaken that he came to abolish the law and the prophets. And he could not be more clear. He says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And we even looked at another New Testament passage where one of the apostles says that Christ is the end of the law. And not in the sense of it ending like ending and going away, but meaning the end like the end of a road, the destination point. Christ is the destination of the law of God. And what that means for us practically, before we jump into one of these commands, is that if we just get together, look at a command and say, here's what it's forbidding, so don't do that. And here's what it's commanding, so do that. And then think that we're done. We're not done. That's not a Jesus take on the Ten Commandments. Each of these commandments should always lead us to the end. And that is to Jesus Christ. So hopefully we're going to do that this morning. We're going to look at the second commandment. This is in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4. And before I read it, just, just for your own mental picture of what's happening and who's there. Last week we looked at just how, how frightening Mount Sinai became when God appeared on it. And, and really, that wasn't just in the sermon text. It was all through our service in the liturgy about the appearance of Mount Sinai. It talks about it, Old Testament, New Testament, terrifying to the people who saw it. And I want you to think about all those hundreds of thousands of people at the foot of the mountain. Now, this may sound like I'm stating the obvious, but I just, you know, it's an Old Testament passage, so, you, so if we're not careful... We can just kind of think, Israelites, okay, I know what they were like. The people at the foot of that mountain did not grow up with the Ten Commandments. I know that may be stating the obvious, but they did not grow up knowing that list. They did not grow up with the Scriptures. They haven't been written yet. Moses hasn't written the first books yet. He's writing the law down, but they don't have what we call the Old Testament, much less the New. They didn't grow up with even the tabernacle yet. You know, the tabernacle was the mobile temple. It was, it was God's tent in the middle of all their tents. Haven't gotten to that point yet. He hasn't instructed how to build it. And they sure don't have a temple. They don't have a clergy. All that's about to be spelled out in the law of God. So think about this. The people at the foot of the mountain, what has been formative for how they think about what religion looks like. And you know what it has to be? Egypt. Now again, even if you grew up and, and you were um, a little Israelite girl and your mom and dad told you that we don't worship the gods of the Egyptians, we worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You don't have the scriptures about that, you just, that's what your family's taught you. Even that little girl, if she's been taught that, when she looks around... She can't escape the statues and the monuments and the reliefs in the walls and the depictions of the Egyptian deities. I mean, that has to have gotten its way into the formatting of how the people at the base of that mountain think about religion and worship. 
So, to these newly released slaves coming out of an Egyptian culture, here's one of God's earliest commands. Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we want to pray together like the psalmist that you would open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law, even your Son. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Have you ever heard the expression, uh, a distinction without a difference? Ever heard that expression, a distinction without a difference? Like, picture if you've got one of these days that happens in the school year where the kids don't have to go to school because the teachers have a work day or some kind of planning thing. You know, let's say you've got a second grader talking to her mom about it, and she says, tomorrow is a holiday. And the mom might say, well, it's actually not a holiday. It's a teacher's working day. Now, that's a distinction for the teachers. To the second grader, that's a distinction without a difference. Like, I just know I'm not going to school tomorrow is really the main, the main thing here. Let's, you know, sometimes in the history of the church, as, as we've tried to figure out how to explain something or say something or impart something, we have fallen into making distinctions that don't really make much of a difference. And I want to give you an example. You may have never heard of this. I don't know. If you've ever heard of the Nicene Creed, which is very good, that was written at the first Nicene Council, gathering of Christian leaders in the 300s, but there was actually a second Nicene Council in the 700s. That's kind of an era that most Protestants like know almost nothing about. One of the items on the, on the docket, you might say, in, in the 700s was, in the early church, we didn't own our own buildings. You know, we were outlaws, so it's all, we met in the catacombs or out in the fields or maybe synagogues became churches, but we, didn't, we hadn't built our own churches yet. But by the 700s, you had. And so one of the questions on the table was, is it okay to, let's say, build a statue of Jesus or a statue of his mother, Mary, or uh, a statue of an angel or, or to paint an angel on the wall? Is it okay to do that? And after... Studying some scriptures, but, and actually, though, really giving more weight to the, the writings of some early Christians. And you always got to be careful with that. Not reading early Christians, but putting anything higher than biblical authority. Here was the conclusion. As the sacred and life-giving cross is everywhere set up as a symbol, so also should the images of Jesus Christ, the Virgin Mary, the holy angels as well as those of the saints and other pious and holy men, be embodied in the manufacture of sacred vessels, tapestries, vestments, etc., and exhibited on the walls of churches, in the homes, and in all conspicuous places, by the roadside and everywhere to be revered by all who might see them. So 
yeah, do it and put them everywhere. Put them inside the church building, put them outside corners, roads. Now, this next part is really important. For the more they are contemplated, the more they move to fervent memory of their prototypes. You understand what it's saying? The more, the more you look at, let's say, the statue of Jesus, the more you think about the real Jesus, the prototype. Therefore, it's proper to accord to them a fervent and reverent adoration, not, however, the veritable worship, which according to our faith, belongs to the divine being alone. Did you hear the distinction they're making? You know, if you see a statue of Jesus and you're a follower of Jesus, you should appreciate, revere, at some level adore that statue, but not at the level that you adore Jesus himself. That, is, that was a well-intentioned distinction. You, you have only to travel all over the world to see that that's a distinction without a difference. And not just in other countries here too. I'm saying all over the world. There's something about our hearts that because we're physical beings, and I'm going to talk about that more in a second, and because it's so hard to live by faith, and it's so much easier to live by sight, that our hearts can really lock onto the statue, or the painting, or the icon, or the mental picture that I have formed. Uh, I've been teaching on C.S. Lewis lately, so I've kind of got C.S. Lewis on the brain. Worse things, probably, than that in life, than C.S. Lewis on the brain, but I'll try not to overdo it. But this is from the Screwtape Letters, and the Screwtape Letters is written, it's an older demon giving his nephew advice about how to tempt the man he's working on. And they refer, it's, it's kind of a clinical way of talking. They refer to the nephew's man as the patient. And, and when you're trying to tempt someone, those are patients. So here's what, uh, here's what Screwtape says about cases he's known. He says, I have known cases where what the patient called his God was actually located up and to the left at the corner of the bedroom ceiling or inside his own head or in a crucifix on the wall. But whatever the nature of the, of the object, you must keep him praying to it, to the thing that he has made, not to the person who has made him. Now, you might feel like I've, I've got it in, I'm kind of being Protestantly smug and kind of got it in for Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox. But did you hear what, did you hear what Screwtape said? I've known cases where the patient... They like pray to a corner of the room as if that's God, as if like, if that's where my prayers are heard. I've known people to do it to a crucifix. He says, I've known people to do it to a mental picture. Now, all of those are cut from the same cloth. It's the work of our human hearts to craft a God that I can get my mind around and at some level see and maybe even touch. That's an old, 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 deep thing in all our hearts. And very early in the Ten Commandments, to people coming out of Egypt, God says, first, don't have any other gods before me. And we said you could translate that. It's not just, I want to be number one before all the other gods. He's saying, don't have any other gods besides me. Don't have any other gods in my presence. But now he's saying this, when you worship me, I do not want the help of depictions, carved, melted, crafted, at some level even imagined. 
you are to worship me as I actually am. So let's look at that. And um, here's, here's the points I want to develop. You know, I think over and over we'll be looking at what's this saying about us? What's this saying about God? What does it say about God? About us? What's it say about, about God? Let's look at first the God crafters and then God. And that's my shortest sermon point ever. Just God is the second sermon point. It's easily covered in just, you know, 10 or 15 minutes. But the God crafters, um, people like us, look in verse 4. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness. And he lists, lists the examples. And that term carved image, that's a, that's a, it's difficult to translate. But just sort of extrapolate from that. Shaping, making, crafting, molding something for purposes of worship. And this is all throughout human history. It cuts across races, geographic lines, cultural lines. It cuts throughout time. It's still all over the world, deep in the human heart. Why are we so prone to carve images? Why why are we so prone to craft deities? And I'd say it's got to be at least a couple of things for us. It's things that are hard for us. We craft deities, or we craft a way to understand God, our deity, for at least a couple of reasons. One is it's hard to live by faith, and it's hard to live with tensions. It's hard to live by faith, and it's hard to live with tensions. Now, I just said this a little while ago, but let me say it again. It is hard for us to live by faith, and it's easy for us to live by sight. If you live by sight, you don't have to live by faith. And living by faith, living, trusting, building your life on and around someone you can't see and realities that you can't see is counterintuitive. It doesn't come naturally to us. And so what what we trend toward is to have something that I can get my senses to attach to. You could say that we're tactile. We want to touch something. You know, I know that, like, I've heard you say this. I've said this about myself. I like my coffee in the morning. And I don't just like it for the taste, although I like that. And I don't just like it for the effects. I really like that. But I love the just, I just love the feel of it. And maybe for you, for you that's ceramic, and maybe for you that's cardboard. I don't know. But like the, just the warm feel of it in my hands, plus the taste, plus the smell, plus just the experience. That's how we are. Is it still in my pocket? Yeah. This is my uh, mechanical pencil, the good old Pentel P205, which I've been with for about 20 years now. And uh, these are littered throughout my house. I've probably purchased about 11,000 over the course of my life. I've spread them throughout the United States, maybe some other countries. But I can hardly read if I'm not holding this. Dana has seen me walking through the house looking for my pencil. You know, and she's going, we have other pencils. It's got to be this kind of pencil. That's how I read the Bible. It's how I read other books. Sometimes I can't really listen to somebody unless I'm holding my Pentel P205. We're tactile. We're all like that. You You might have had a coach who couldn't who couldn't coach you unless he or she was holding a whistle or holding a clipboard or whatever. We're embodied. We gravitate toward that. And if you want a famous example of how that just manifested itself early, a famous account comes shortly after this in Exodus. It's the account of the golden calf. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. 
God is still manifesting himself and speaking to Moses because the people were too scared. They said, you talk to him and we'll do whatever he says, which that did not come true. So Moses has been away for a while. The people get restless. They come to Moses' brother, Aaron, and they say, we don't even know where your brother is. You know, they don't know how the story turns out. They've never read Exodus. And so Aaron says, look, bring, just bring me, bring me gold. So they start bringing him jewelry that they plundered from the Egyptians. And Aaron takes it and he melts it and he crafts a golden calf. Now the important thing I want you to see in this story is what he said. Because he did not craft this golden calf and then say to the people, this is your new God and give it a name and say, now worship this God. He makes it. He says, behold your God, O Israel. And then he says, tomorrow we will have a festival to Yahweh. He's not saying worship another God. He's saying, you're frustrated. You know something's going up on that mountain, but you can't see him. And our man is up there and we haven't seen Moses. So let me give you something tactile for you to worship Yahweh. It's hard to live by faith. And like when you suffer or you're hurting, you, you know how our minds operate. Maybe, maybe you've been a Christian a long time and you have still felt this way that, you know, if Jesus would just physically walk in the door and just talk to me for five minutes, I'd be okay. Which is interesting because Jesus said, it's actually better for you that I go away and I send my Holy Spirit and you live by faith. Hard to live by faith. And it's hard to live with tensions. And, and the tension that I've got in mind is one that we talk about in here all the time. Look, look back at the command. Look at verse 5. And I, I want to emphasize one word in particular. Verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for... In other words, because I, the Lord, I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now think about what he just said. Do not make a carved image because I am Yahweh. And I'm the God who, on the one hand, I visit the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. That does not mean God is saying, hey, if you sin, I'm going to keep punishing your great-great-grandchildren. That, that term visit is very important. It means, I am Yahweh. I created this world for righteousness to work. I created this world to be inhabited by people who reflect me back to myself if you kick against that, if you disobey me, the ripple effects of that will not only touch you and your immediate family, the ripple effects will, will uh, affect generations. My great-grandfather was an alcoholic. And the older I get and the more I think about it, I see ways that he has impacted my own life generations later. Is God punishing me for my great-grandfather? No. But am I visited by the effects of his sin? I believe I am. And you could tell your stories. God is saying, I am so holy. 
I made this world to be so special that that's how life works. So there's that. And I give special, committed, tender, fierce, pursuing, steadfast love to thousands. Now, the way our minds work, we don't like tension. We like resolution. So we're kind of looking at both of those going, well, which is it? He's God. And that actually, by the way, plays out in the golden calf incident. Because when Moses is coming down from Mount Sinai, from being with God, with the tablets, he hears sort of like a a concert. And he asks, why am I hearing a concert? And it's because the people have lost control and they, they are worshiping Yahweh, the calf. And Moses instructs the Israelites that if you are with God, the real God, strap a sword to your side and strike down your peers. And the tribe of Levi did that and began killing some of the men who had worshipped this false god. That's why the tribe of Levi became the priests. It's another sermon. Horrible. Dark chapter in Israel's history. Moses is looking at this. He's dismayed. He doesn't know how the book of Exodus ends. And so he asked God, I want to see you. God says, you can't see my face and live. I'll put you in the cleft of a rock. My glory will pass by you. I'll cover you with my hand, and I'll let you see my back. And so the next day he does that. Moses is put in the rock. God passes by in his glory. What do you think he says on the heels of the golden calf incident? He says his name. What do you think he says? Yahweh, angry. Exodus 34. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now think of the tensions for Moses. Bloodshed, anger, wrath breaking out, compassion, grace, forgiveness to be had, Yahweh, which is it? I am who I am. You can't paint that. You can't carve that. Unless we get too smug. At some level, this is the tension. You can't picture it. I am who I am. I am who I say I am. And you know, when we talk about the fact that we're people that need to hear all of God's Word. We don't need to just park in little portions of Scripture that are our, you know, kind of go-to hobby horse passages. We need all of God's Word. One of the reasons that we need all of God's Word is you need to hear all the tensions. God, in all these different settings, all these different ways that He speaks to us, Because what we're prone to do is the scales inside of us crash to one side. Well, he's severe. No, he's nice. Oh, he's wrath. No, he's love. He is who he is. Both and, not either or. Crafters struggle with this. We want to see him and touch him, and we want him to be portable and understandable and tension-free. We've always been that way. So what about God? And a couple of things here. 
First off, and I, I really love getting to talk about this one. God marries us. God doesn't just say, come believe in me and don't be dumb. Come believe in me and don't have like doofus Egyptian deities. Come believe in me and don't have doofus Canaanite deities. He says before he gives any laws, you will, to people that are going to worship the golden calf, you will be my treasured possession. Why would God treasure people like them? Why would God treasure people like us? Because he's God. He loves sinners. There's no other kind of people to love. He calls sinners to be his unique people because there are no other kinds of people to call. And he says in this verse 5, let's go back to the language, you shall not bow down to them or serve them for, because I, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Now that term jealous to us is so yucky because jealousy on our level between each other is so often it's, it's possessive, and it's volatile, and it's domineering, and it's unstable. It, it's, it's overwhelmingly something that we understand is unhealthy. But the term that's used here in verse 5, it only appears in the books of Moses when God is talking about himself. It's not the term you find in the rest of the Old Testament for just jealous husband, jealous lover. God always uses this term when he's speaking in terms of, you, my people, are my spouse. And that metaphor is all through the scriptures, Old and New Testament. You are my spouse. I'm not just calling you to give you, like, better info. Like, you know, Canaanites, they've got inferior data. Egyptians have inferior data. Here's the real goods. This is like, here's the great blueprint for living a top-notch life. He's saying, I am marrying you in covenant. And I'm jealous for you in my love that you know me as I actually am. That you worship me as I actually am because that's what you are made for. And you think about that. You think about, all right, like in a a human marriage, what if, let's let's reverse the genders here. You know, God reveals himself as husband, as people, as bride. But let's flip it. What if a husband took a photo of his wife as she really appears and he photoshopped it to change all the things that he wants to change. So he, he makes her hair more lustrous, and he gets rid of blemishes on the skin, and he gets the curves the way he likes them. And well, I'm just going to stop this list now. But he, he makes all the, all the alterations that, that he prefers, that he likes, meaning that he alters the things that are her that he doesn't like. And then let's say that this is what he posts on social media and goes, love this woman. Or he shows this picture to his friends and says, she is the best. If she said to him, I am jealous for you, would that be, would that be an evil thing for her to say or an amazing thing for her to say? After he treated her that way. After he just conveyed to her and anybody else that, you know, let me take how you actually are and twist it to suit me. And then brag on you and say, this is my spouse. God says, do not alter me. 
I mean, that, and that's the thing. When you really get to know the living God, when he has his way with you, when he, when he opens his word to you, when his spirit's at, at work in you, everybody gets stretched. He'll be bigger than you want him to be. He'll be holier than you want him to be. At points, he'll be angrier than you want him to be. But here's the kicker. At points, he will be more gracious than you want him to be. Because sometimes, his grace is so potent, it's tough to accept. Like, you really blow it, and what you want him to say is, run 70 miles and say the Lord's Prayer 10 times, and then you're forgiven. But instead, he says, come to me and let me wash you. And all you'll contribute is the sin. And it undoes us. We have to have our hands on everything. Everybody gets stretched when they see who God really is. He says, do not alter my image. Don't try to depict me. What, what facial expression would we give God? Just a smile? Just a frown? Would we give him a straight face? That wouldn't work either because then we'll impose on it what we want. He is who he is. But there's the second thing, and this is really, I think, where all this is leading. He marries us as he actually is and as we actually are, but God provides the image. And this is so great. He says to people that want an image, he says, you don't carve the image. But he doesn't say, there can never be an image. He provides the image. Did you notice our call to worship when we began this morning? And as it turns out, this was not a coincidence. Colossians 1.15, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God makes the image. You know, I, I heard somebody put it this way. When, when we experience suffering, when we're hurting, and I think when we're in communication with somebody that we really care about who doesn't, doesn't believe in God, do, doesn't buy it, I think at moments, not only for ourselves, but for that person that we care about, we'll just think, man, God, why didn't you just give us some just slam-dunk, airtight argument. You know what I mean? Why didn't you just give us some incredible, logical formula that proves you and that everything you said is right, and it's just like the royal flush that you just kind of slam down after a while, and they have to believe. And I heard somebody say this, God did not provide us an airtight argument. God sent an airtight person. God sent... His own Son, fully God, but fully man, you could touch Him, you could hear Him, you could embrace Him. You could have given Him a kiss on a day where He was sweating and taste the salt. And He is the image of who God actually is. And here's the thing. You have to get this that you cannot know God as he actually is and do an end run around Jesus. 
The way we know what God is actually like is through Jesus Christ. And here's the amazing thing. When you get to know him, you're going to bump into all the same tensions. Just when you thought that he was super friendly, he'll say, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And we're stretched. Because that's so exclusive. And I know people in other religions, and I'm stretched. So then maybe my pendulum swings way over here to, wow, he's so exclusive. And then he'll say, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. The Son of Man did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. God as he actually is. The cross is God showing us God as he actually is. The cross is the wrath of God. The cross is the love of God. Cross is the justice of Yahweh. The cross is the compassion and forgiveness of Yahweh. Jesus Christ is the image of God. And, you know, th- that has application for two kinds of people in this room those who do not yet know Him and those who already do know Him. You may be here and, and you may know that, like, I'm not a Christian, or I don't think I'm a Christian, I think I'm, I'm seeking. And if that's you, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. But here's how I want to nudge you. Do not try to get to know him and do an end run around Jesus. Read all the scriptures, but please give first and foremost attention to the Gospels. More loving than you could imagine. More severe than you can imagine. More hating of sin than you could have imagined. More welcoming of real sinners than you could have imagined. Because that's who God is. And to come to Him. Say, I want to know God. Give me yourself. Give me trust and belief in you. But what about for the person who's here and they do know Jesus Christ? Maybe you've been a Christian for years. Do you know what all of us are very prone to? At least I'll speak from my own experience. We are prone to live off borrowed capital. Or if not borrowed capital, old capital. Meaning, we are prone to sort of live off a verse I read ten years ago. Or a sermon I heard five years ago. Or a scripture that I really thought about till it touched me deeply like eight years ago. We need direct contact with Jesus Christ over and over again. And over and over. We want to see him, I know. But we live by faith. But you know what's beautiful? Is that if, if we will see him by faith in his word. And if we will even get these tastes and smells. And sensory interaction with him and his people through the sacraments. You know what will happen one day is that you'll die. And then you'll rise. And you will see the risen Christ. And you know what will happen when you see him? You'll be able to say, I know you. I saw you. 
I saw you the way God really revealed you through your word and in the sacraments, in your people, by your spirit. We need that now. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, please help us not to um, make an image, not just physically, but even in our minds or in our feelings and our instincts, that is not who you are. And we pray that from the work of your Spirit in us, from all your Word, from Jesus Christ, the exact imprint of your nature, that we would know you and talk to you and worship you, know you, cry to you, laugh to you as you are. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.